Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much um, for these student leaders. I thank you that, uh, Lord, that uh, they get to uh, be on the front seat of many students who are asking a lot of hard questions and grappling with their faith. And so, Lord, will you um, please give us your spirit in these next few minutes as we think about uh, captivating uh, the hearts of the next generation with the beauty of Jesus Christ. Uh, help us, Holy Spirit. We pray right now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So um, I was in youth ministry for about 17 years. I worked with Joey for uh, about uh, 10 of those years in voluntary ways and then on staff. And then I uh, was a youth pastor at uh, church in Chattanooga for eight years or five years and then did family ministry for about three years and then recently was called uh, by See Jesus ministry a ministry that Paul Miller started about 30 years ago uh, and Paul Miller if you've read any of his books a praying life or a loving life or love walked among us uh, if you've read a praying life he is he is just like you've met Paul Miller so he is uh, a prayer. Uh, we spend a lot of time in prayer over Zoom calls. Uh, we spend at least two hours in just in prayer a week. Uh, and then uh, we spend more time outside of that. But Paul Miller had written down on a prayer card 25 years ago and started praying that he could take the ministry that he started, which is kind of a global, global discipling ministry, into the youth ministry context. And so uh, my journey, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about my journey in that, but See Jesus is, is kind of this global discipling mission. These are different places. The stars represent training centers. Uh, and so uh, these are different places around the world that trainings and seminars uh, are actively going in different countries of the world where people have been trained, so it's a it's a big, uh, a bigger organization. There's about 30 people on staff, about 15 of those who are full time, and so that's kind of where I am uh, starting this. Start just started in November, so just want to give you a little bit about my background uh, in this journey. Uh, about five years ago, uh, I went to a seminar uh, in town that someone invited me to by a guy named Dan Spader. Raise your hand if you've heard of Dan Spader. Andy, the only one in two classes. Uh, most of the reason we haven't heard of Dan Spader is because he doesn't kind of fit our little reform paradigm. Uh, he's, a, he's a Baptist, uh, but he has this ministry called Sun Life, and it's the study of the sun's life. And so I went to this seminar with Dan Spader, and had been uh, in the church uh, for, you know, in the Reformed Church for 20 years. Uh, I'd been ordained for about 10 years. I'd been in ministry uh, as a youth, youth director and then on staff uh, for about 17, 18 years at that point. And Dan Spader started talking about Jesus in ways that I'd never heard before. And it rocked my world. He started talking about things that, that really made me, uh, made my heart 
um, kind of come alive. I was at a pretty pretty low part uh, in my life. I was, it was kind of in a theological desert, if you will, uh, and trying to figure things out. And I knew these things about who Jesus was. Uh, I knew all these historical creeds uh, from my church history stuff and, and knew all these councils had formed. I knew, I knew uh, the Council of Chalcedon, this beautiful, probably outside of Philippians 2 and other places in Scripture, probably one of the greatest doctrinal statements on the person of Jesus that have ever been written is the Council of Chalcedon. A beautiful uh, display uh, of who Jesus was. But my view of Jesus was this. My view of Jesus was that he was superhuman. That the only reason he did divine things, did miracles, the only reason he walked on water, the only, you know, it was this, this superhuman, otherworldly Jesus that I couldn't really relate with. But I knew that he had come and done awesome things, like accomplished salvation for me, lived the perfect life that I could not, rose again from the dead. I knew all those things, but my view of him was that he was more God than he was man. So sometimes people make the mistake and flip it around. Right? This is what heresies have struggled with since the first century. Who is Jesus? And that was the, gra- the grappling that went on. The reality is, is that's the answer. Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully man, in one person. Right? This, uh, this creed says, uh, especially that middle ground where, there it's, where it's in italics, the two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparable, the distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and occurring in one person. I knew all of this history. I had it. And just a couple of quotes. B.B. Warfield says, Though really man, possessing all that makes man a man, yet at the same time, infinitely more than a man, no less than God himself, in possession of all that makes God, God. Augustine said, if you diminish his humanity, then you diminish what he did for us. If you make him less than human, then our salvation is less than complete. So I understood all that. I understood the biblical perspectives. I understood Isaiah 53. I understood Hebrews 1, that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. I understand that in Christ all things hold together. I'd given illustrations about the glory of Christ is like when my, in holding all things together, it's like when me and my brothers used to work for this gentleman and we'd get golf balls out of this pond on the golf course and some of them would be nicked by a lawnmower. So we'd take these pliers and we'd like wrench off the plastic off the golf ball and then cut the rubber band and the rubber bands on the golf ball would just go, anybody ever done that? It's really cool. But that's what would happen if Jesus Christ, the king of the universe, took his hands away from this creation. It would just unravel like a golf ball. I understood all that. I understood 
the beauty of him being the creator, uh, of, of him being the one with the Father, and all those, these beautiful doctrines under, understood Philippians 2, and um, the, the humility of, of Christ in this, that, and it talks about this emphasis on the same mind, the same love, being of full accord on one mind, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Why do all these things? Verse 5, look at it. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though was in the form of God, did not count equality to God a thing to be grasped, but counted himself nothing, considered himself, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to even death on a cross. So I knew all those things. So I was sitting, after I left that, that seminar, Dan Spader started talking about the person of Jesus. I was sitting there and he started talking about Jesus. He said, you guys realize that Jesus wasn't born with an SD card in his brain? I was like, why is he asking this question? He's fixing to blow, he was fixing to blow my paradigm of superhuman Jesus. He said, do you realize that Jesus, probably as a young rabbi, or a young, a young boy went and studied under a rabbi and he started memorizing the scriptures. And for a young Jewish boy, uh, literally they were, a Jewish boy was kind of bright and I assume Jesus was probably pretty bright. He would memorize the first five books of the Bible and the entire Psalms, word for word. And a rabbi would come in to test Jewish boys and the way that they test them and they would say a line They'd skip a line and say another line anywhere within the Pentateuch. And the, the boy, the Jewish boy, would have to tell them what piece was missing. Could you imagine what that would be like? Could you imagine Jesus in the fullness of humanity with no sin to taint his ability to understand the scriptures? Could you imagine, and Dan started talking about the realities of Jesus being the fullness of humanity and that you and I are fallen humanity. And it could be that we have never really experienced what it means to be fully human. Jesus as the fullness of humanity without sin to taint his ability to, to commune with the Holy Spirit. Man, what would life be like for the perfect son the perfect human to commune with the Holy Spirit. What would it be like for sin not to taint your ability to pray? And Jesus Christ often went away to spend time in communion with his Father in prayer. So he started rattling through all these things. And Paul's doctrine of how much, his kind of saying of how much more hit me like a sledgehammer in the chest. It was like, man, if, if Jesus is the fullness of humanity and he spent time in the word and we see that come to light in the wilderness temptation and all throughout as he quotes his Old Testament scriptures. And if Jesus Christ spent time in prayer, that doesn't make any sense. You realize that, right? If we believe that Jesus is God, why did he pray? Like, didn't he know everything? I mean, we, we kind of default to, well, he did it for an example. I would say, no, actually, 
Jesus was the most dependent person to ever walk the planet. He was totally dependent on his father. Well, what, about, what about the time, the times that Jesus communed with the Holy Spirit? The times he spent in the word, the times that he spent in prayer, and the doctrine that, that Paul's how much more just kept hitting me in the chest if the fullness of humanity, the perfect man, spent time in the Word, spent time in prayer, communed with the Holy Spirit, how much more in my fallenness should I? You see how that hits us? Like, oh my goodness, like, I, I, I think about all these spiritual disciplines and they've become so depersonalized for me because I never saw that my Savior actually exercised the same spiritual disciplines that I'm called to. We label them as the means of grace. Jesus partook of the means of grace in the fullness of humanity. So they're not just given for fallen humanity. They're given to say to you and me to say, guess what? This is what it looks like to be human. This is what it looks like to be the ones who bear my image. You live in communion with me in my word. You live in communion with me in prayer. You live in communion with me with the Holy Spirit. You live in communion with one another in relationship. You, you spend time in worship in me. Jesus gives us a picture of that. And I came across, so I actually left that seminar that day. And Dan Spader didn't ever ask this question, but he had this booklet, which I picked up. And it's a, it's a workbook, walking, walking as Jesus Walked. Like, I don't know if you, some of you are going to pick this up. I encourage you to, go, to do this. Uh, it changed me in, in really radical ways. Some of you are going to get to points and you're going to be really uncomfortable. You're be like, man, this is like pressing on an ancient heresy here. Like, this is like pushing the envelope. Uh, just work through that. Don't be scared of these kind of things. This, 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 this title of it just jumped off the page at me. I left the seminar that day and I go, I've, I've been walking with Jesus since I was uh, anywhere from a middle schooler to a high schooler. And I have no idea how Jesus walked. I know a lot about him in the way that he accomplished my salvation, how he went to the cross and how he was raised again from the dead. And I know my Pauline theology really well, but I have no idea how he lived life. And it struck me. And it was kind of like for, for the first time, and Joey, I've used this. I don't just say this because you're in here. I say it every time I talk to people about this ministry because Joey Stewart introduced me to the freeing doctrine of justification. I had the, kind of these three moments in my life. One, my conversion. Two was when Joey introduced me to the doctrine of justification. It was like freedom, like screaming, brave, brave, brave heart, freedom. Like why has no one ever told me the beauty of the doctrine of justification? It was one of those those moments, those hang your hat on moments of my life. And then I had another one five years ago at this Dan Spader conference. 
and it changed things for me. And I began to, I began to research. Let me go back. That jumped a page. I began to, I began to dive into the scriptures, and I thought I'm going to figure out how Jesus walked. I'm going to start doing that. I did that workbook. I started picking up other stuff I could find. I started to find everything I could to read on the person of Jesus. And you know how big that stack was? It was about that high off the table. And you know how many books have been written on the work of Christ? I could fill this building. The church has a hole in its theology. Paul Miller had a conversation with Wayne Grudem, and he said, Wayne, why has no one ever written about the person of Jesus in, in the sense of his compassion, his honesty, his, his love, uh, the way he did anger, all these different things? And Wayne said, you're right, we're, we're missing that. And part of that goes all the way back to, there's a lot of history in that, the Greeks and the Stoics and the uh, and, the, and then getting into the Protestant Reformation where, yes, Martin Luther was right. The, the hinge on which the church stands and falls was the doctrine of justification. But I would submit to you today that the hinge on which the church stands or falls is the person of Jesus. And I'll, I'll hopefully keep arguing why that is uh, and show that to you. So I came to all these exhortations in Scripture, exhortations of be holy, for I am holy. Walk in the same manner as I do. Follow me. Have the same mind. Have the same love. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. In Ephesians, he says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Peter says, walk in his footsteps. And I started to my, my reform paradigm, you know what it did? What would your reform paradigm do? Here's what mine did. My fallen condition focus was so big that I said, I can't walk like Jesus. Now, I, I, I went to a service uh, at Christmas, around Christmas time, and the pastor was preaching from Philippians 2. I really respect this guy and really enjoy his preaching. He got to the first part of Philippians 2 and was talking about have the same mind, have the same love, and have this mind among yourselves. And then he goes into the passage in Philippians 2 where it talks about Christ being a servant. And our paradigm, this is the shape of our reform paradigm that the pastor literally said three times, we can't imitate Jesus. We can't imitate Jesus. And he jumped to the whole middle of that section. He didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped and considered him, he became a servant. And, all that, and he went into this big theology. It's great. But the whole passage is about imitation. Philippians 2 is saying, your Savior became a servant and humbled himself Therefore, have the same mind. Have the same love. It's a passage of imitation. It's shining the light on the beauty of Jesus Christ. And then it's saying, go and imitate. Why do we jump to, I can't do it? Because we are 
very good and heavily weighted toward our fallen condition. And we don't do a great job at the fact that we are a new creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're really good at union with Christ. Really good at union with Christ. But we're miserable at imitation. We're scared of it. We're scared of imitation because it might lead to legalism. We're scared of imitation because it might lead to pietism. We're scared of imitation because it, it, it might end up leading us uh, to the realm of, uh, of morality. We kind of go back to the whole WWJD stuff, right? It scares us to death. But the Bible is full of those. Those aren't empty exhortations. Do you know when Jesus gave the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them, teaching them to obey my commandments? The, the disciples didn't leave that time with Jesus, that commandment from Jesus, and form a committee and try to figure out what discipleship was supposed to look like. They had encountered it. They might have had a rally to figure out the strategy to carry it out in what cities. But they'd, they'd, they'd experienced it. And there was, so there was this imitation that we need to get back to. And then the, this last one, this is going to, Maybe ruffle some feathers. Um, the, last thing, the, the last thing that I was convicted of as I came out of that seminar was, man, I had these, I had uh, like the gospel cycle that we, uh, we teach. We have gospel-centered life, gospel-centered marriage, gospel-centered youth ministry, gospel-centered parenting, gospel-centered um, work, right? All that, I love that stuff that Serge puts out. It's great stuff. But for me, I was, I was, I was literally sitting there and, my, and it was like two iron wheels trying to lock together every morning when I wake up and preach the gospel to yourself, preach the gospel to yourself. Okay, Robert, you're a sinner. You're saved by grace. Repent and forgive. Believe the gospel. Okay, I got it. I'm back. Okay, go and, I can go and do my day. So what faith for me had been reduced to a formula and the formula, being biblical, I believe, has a missing arm to it. So it's a truncated gospel. And here's the missing piece. The person of Jesus is at the center of that. And let me give you an example of how this, how this worked out in my life. <clears throat> Just recently. So my, uh, my, one of my sons came into the, uh, the family room the other night. This was like a week ago. Uh, he's, something's gone on. I don't know what it is. 17, stuff happens, right? So he's in a bad mood. Uh, I was trying to create conversation with him, and it was like, wow, he just like bit my head off. Uh, so much so that my very meek, calm wife got on to him and said, I'm not going to say his name. Son, uh, you are being very disrespectful to your father right now. You're out of line. And in the moment when he did that, 
There was a moment in my, in my life, and, this, and I'm not exaggerating this. You know, I think there, this gospel cycle thing works when, when we're focused on Jesus. So thinking about, thinking about my anger in the moment, the Holy Spirit did this in my mind because I'd been studying something that Paul Miller had written on Jesus, how Jesus does anger. You ever thought about that? He's betrayed by Judas. He says he was deeply troubled in his spirit. He's at the tomb of Lazarus, and we, we translate it as his spirit was deeply moved or deeply troubled, but the actual translation is enraged. He was angry at what sin and death had done to his world. And I thought, how would Jesus do anger? I just said it to myself. How would Jesus do anger right now? Because I've been thinking on his person, like how he lived out, like what, what it means to be human. What is fullness of humanity? What is the, how would the perfect human react right now? What would Jesus do? I'm not saying that in a trite way. So I, I walk from the den into the kitchen, and here's the next thing my son says. Oh, so now you're going to give me the silent treatment. So he was really ramped up. So what happens in me? It's like, whew, like blood pressure. Like I'm about to bust a hole in him. Like what's, what are we going to do here? And I just said, son, uh, honestly, I'm just pausing for a moment. And I'm, I'm thinking about my Savior and how he might react right now. And he stormed past me and went up to his room. Ten minutes later, he comes down. He says, Dad, I'm sorry. Like, I was, I was so disrespectful. Like, I, I should not have done that to you. He gave me a hug. Please forgive me. Like, he's a quick repenter. I'm thankful for that. But you know what would have happened in the past? And I'm not saying I've arrived because the next day I blew it with my daughter. So... <laughs> In the past, I would have engaged in anger, would have lashed out at my son. There would have been a great conflict in the home. My youngest little girl would have been crying. My wife would have been upset. My other son would have gone to his room and shut the door. You know, the whole house would have been turned upside down in this conflict. And what I'm, what I'm telling you that Jesus is doing in my heart is that when... I have, it feels like I've sat at the feet of Jesus and learned what life looks like. And so the gospel cycle becomes, I repent, I believe, I go into the heart of who Jesus is, I learn what life is supposed to look like from him, and then I come back out and do life. And if we just continue to give our students a formula then when they get on the college campus and it's all on principle, it's all on truth. I knew the principle of don't be angry in your heart. I knew the principle of don't exasperate your children. I knew the scriptures. But those things didn't take root until they were personalized in Jesus. Does that make sense? So if our students leave our youth ministry and all we've given them is the formula 
and not captivated their heart by the beauty of the person of Jesus, the fullness of humanity, when they go onto the college campus and all they've got is truth and principle and formula that we've shoved down their throats and it becomes up against the marketplace of ideas on the college campus, is it any wonder that they're never returning to the church? We have depersonalized our faith and reduced it down to principles and truths. We want to give them a biblical worldview. Yes, we want to give them a biblical worldview. We want them to understand justification. Yes, we want to do all those things. We want to do all these things of what my theological frame was and is. But we want to take the theological frame and like Ezekiel, we want the dry bones to come to life. We want to put sinews and muscles and tissue. And how do we do that? We, we do it by submersing them into the beauty, the captivating beauty of the person of Jesus. Does that make sense? Let's pause here. Any questions or thoughts? Anything jumping out at you? Resistance. Objects thrown. Anything. <laughs> I can try. Um, yeah, I think the what, what would Jesus do movement was, was, I'll take a stab at it. I think it was centered more on um, the patterns of your life uh, that move into um, real like readings of, okay, Jesus went and healed uh, a demon-possessed man, therefore I have the ability to go heal a demon-possessed man. Um, I have um, Jesus, um, like the individual things that Jesus did, Jesus walked this path, and some people even took it to, like, I got to go to Jerusalem, got to walk the path, I need to be baptized in the Jordan, um, all that movement. But I think what I'm, what we're getting at is, that if, if we move into and start understanding this person of love, this fullness of humanity, it begins to transform us over time as we understand him. And therefore, my heart is not just moved to kind of what would Jesus do, but it's moved from a heart of love that I've been captivated by this beautiful person. And that, by the power of God's grace, starts to transform the way in which I do life. It changes my, my sanctification. I think we've got a truncated sanctification. There's a picture I wanted to pull up on here. It's a picture of a guy with like, he's been working out one arm and his muscle's just massive and this one's like real small. And I feel like that's kind of what we've done. We put, oh man, great emphasis on the work of Christ, but very little emphasis on this person. We haven't learned from him what life looks like what it means to be human. I think I'll get to more of that in a minute. All right, so here's, here's some statistics. Y'all know these. 40, 40, you know, if you've got a youth group of, of 30 kids, statistically speaking, that come from a Christian home, a good home, and a good youth group, half of them are going to leave the church. That's the, that's the stats, okay? Here's, uh, here's some more stats for you. Um, these are from Barna and... A book called Growing Younger, uh, Andy, you and I talked about that at one point. 
You know, research has uh, indicated the, the less likely they were to claim to be an active, influential bond with Jesus. Um, more young people are entering college as ex-believers than ever before. 33% of church youth have said that the church will play, um, only 33% that the church will play a role in their life uh, when they leave home. You know, the, the newest generation, Generation Z is what they're being labeled as. Um, you know, they, they rank religious beliefs as the sixth most important thing that speaks to their identity. Guess what number one was? Do what? Themselves. Good. That's good. It's not, but that's a good, <laughs> good guess. What's the, what's the number one thing that dominates your kids more than anything else in their life? Yeah, a little more specific than culture. Certain aspect of it. What do they spend more time on? Social media. Social media? No? No? You're all around it. It's okay. Is it not? Is it? Is, it's it's uh, the one that they give in Barna is their education. I mean, isn't, isn't our there's an idolatry going on in our culture about education. Eight hours of school, three to four hours of homework, they do it again. My kids uh, spend more hours in doing school stuff than I do work. <laughs> it's crazy. They're spending 90 hours a week doing school. Uh, it's becoming their, their, their identity. Um, 63% of teenager, teenage Christians believe that Jesus is the son of the one true God. 63% don't believe that Jesus is the, the son of the one true God. That's high. 51%. So half of them don't even believe that he rose again from the dead. So what's the story? This is, I'm not just saying this because uh, I'm doing a ministry with See Jesus for the next generation. I'm doing this because I was in ministry in youth ministry for about 17 years. And I believe that you guys are the most important thing for the future of the church. What you're doing is shaping the future of Christ church. You have this wonderful privilege to help students be captivated with Jesus Christ. I'm gonna ask you a question at the end that's gonna be encouraging to you. So uh, the statistics that come up, all those things, what are the reasons why half your kids when they leave your youth group are never going to come back to church? Give me just a few responses. What do you think? Lack of connection. Okay. Anybody else? Why, your, why half your youth group will leave and not come back, statistically speaking? not enter the church again. Irrelevant. Okay. Pulled away by the influence of others. Okay. It's not fun. Not fun. Yeah. It's not real. Not real. Okay, good. Yeah, those are great. So here's, based on my bias towards the person of Jesus, I believe 
that we haven't captivated their hearts with the beauty of Jesus. I believe that we've captivated a love for the work of Christ, his death on the cross, his resurrection. We're very Pauline in our emphasis, but we haven't cultivated a love for the person. I think another reason could be that we've, we've captivated them their hearts have been captivated by the benefits of Christ. Been captivated, I mean, who doesn't want eternal life? Who doesn't want forgiveness of sins? Who doesn't want adoption? Who doesn't want to be, know that they've been declared righteous and their sins are forgiven and they can't do anything to add to that or to take away from it? Those are all wonderful doctrinal truths that we stand on, right, that are really good. But if... But if they're falling in love with the benefits and not the person, and it could be that they get on a college campus and we've so depersonalized their faith that there's nothing to hang on to because they haven't been captured by the beauty of Jesus. They've been captured by the beauty of forgiveness. Maybe the beauty of cultural Christianity. Well, wow, that's it. We could spend a whole week on cultural Christianity, right? And the trappings of it. You know what I think cultural Christianity does? It makes us numb to the person of Jesus. I think it numbs our students. It's a very, very dangerous thing. And it makes us think of really as a real small view of the kingdom. Um, our Paul Miller, one of the reasons that he and I ended up having this long conversation. I went to another seminar in Atlanta and a guy got up and spoke after me being on this kind of personal journey. Honestly, guys, like a really quiet journey for me. I was really honestly scared to go and tell anyone in our presbytery that I didn't think the gospel cycle was complete without the person of Jesus at the center of it, that I thought we were missing something when we, when we throw out this word gospel and we think that everybody understands what we mean and we don't give the person of Jesus behind it and, then, and at the heart of it. I was scared to tell other pastors because I thought I'd be kicked out of the presbytery and not be ordained anymore. And I, and I, got, to, I got to that seminar in Atlanta after I'd been quietly studying for two to three years, and this guy got up and, and did a sermon, like a 20-minute devotion, and I was like, that guy, he's on to something. Like, that's what I've been, he's hitting right, the nail on the head. He talked about the beauty of the person of Jesus in ways that captivated me. I was, I was mesmerized by it. And I grabbed him afterwards, and I said, I said, hey, where do, like, I've been on this journey. Like, you're, everything you're saying is what I, I'm, I've been really hitting on lately. And he said, hey, you need to, you need to go um, seek out the person of Jesus study by Paul Miller. I was like, I had never heard of, I knew Paul Miller wrote a praying life. That's all I knew. I didn't even know their ministry was called See Jesus. So I got in touch with Paul Miller, started sharing with him. And he said, yeah, Robert, we have a, we have a hole in our theology. I was like, what do you mean by that? He said, do you realize that it took the church 1,900 years? From the first century, it took a 1,900 years for anyone in history to write about the emotions 
the emotional life of Jesus. And why is that? There's, you know, we could go a long history. Paul does a much more articulate job. He's a very wise guy. He does a much more articulate job with this. But it traces itself back even to the early days of Gnosticism in the first century. And then you get into Stoics and then you get into all these different factions. And like I already talked about, the Reformation and the, the overcorrection of the church and those kind of things. 1900 years before anybody wrote about his emotions. And part of that's created for us a weak anthropology, right? The anth- our anthropology is the, the study of man, what it means to be human. And I believe there's, uh, because we've neglected a study of the person of Jesus, our anthropology is weak. We're really good at an image of God stuff. Uh, we're really good at our fallen condition focus. Uh, really good at that, but we're really weak uh, on the other. We've talked about our strong union weakness on imitation. We've talked about the gospel cycle. I'll talk about the cultural collapse in a minute. So what, here's, here's the solutions. Let me just click through these. So the, the first one's there. Well, shoot, went back. Oh, I don't want to click through all those again. Sorry. Oh, it's going to make me. Got to love it. <laughs> so the, the solutions to these things, what are they? To cultivate a love for the person of Jesus, not just, not just his work. What does it look like for you to cultivate a love for, your stu- love for Jesus Christ? So that... These are some of the things I just listed down here, right? Cultivating a love for the person of Jesus, to be, to be awestruck with his beauty. And that's what, I'm going to give you all a copy of this lesson. And again, like I told the first group, like I hated it when I would go to a YLT and like the guy would get up and speak and all he was doing in the end was promoting his material. I'm not doing that at all. I don't care if you don't take it. I'm just saying, I want to help you Kind of as I come alongside youth pastors and, and help RYM in whatever ways I can, my goal is that, that I would help you be captivated by the beauty of the person of Jesus. And the stuff that See Jesus is doing helps my heart do that, and I think it'll help your heart do that too. If I can help in any way, small way, big way, whatever, help youth leaders be captivated by the beauty of Jesus, I know that that will translate to their students being captivated. Because I promise you, I, got, I, had to, I had the opportunity to go plant a church and had been approved in Atlanta and all that jazz, was ready to go do that. And I knew, there's lots of reasons why I didn't do that. But in the end, it was not going to be life-giving for me. This stuff, this journey to see the beauty of the person of Jesus has transformed my life. And I believe that it can transform followers of Jesus to fall deeply in love with him. That's why I think there's a captivation of it. Like to know Jesus is to know what it means to be human, to be an image bearer. 
Union should always lead to imitation. Don't be scared of imitation. It's okay. Uh, you can write down some of these passages, and this is in your, the electronic stuff you got. Um, knowing Christ is the central thread of the apostles' exhortations. And you think about the, uh, the ways in which um, we'll, look at, we'll look at it in a minute at the end here in a, a quick exercise. So let me, uh, let, me just, let me just show you kind of this, the appeal of uh, secular liberalism. If I draw kind of two circles here, the middle of this rep- represents the divinity of Jesus. The other circle represents the humanity of Jesus. Don't throw me under your bus and say, Chalcedon says you shouldn't separate those two into two circles, so that's okay. They're one. What are the things that your students love culturally and are about, are like really passionate about, that are good things? Think about millennials and Gen Zs. What are the things that they're really passionate about in the world? Justice. Very good. Okay. Anything else? Give me some more. I'm gonna, I'm gonna make you give me that many. <laughs> Identity. Identity. Okay. Things they're passionate about. Okay. Now that's a cool one. Well, I'm going to hit on that in a sec. Yeah, auth- they love authenticity. They like racial equality, right? They're all about all about those things. You know what's you know what's interesting is when you think about secular liberalism, secular liberalism has taken these things and and what's happened over time is that secular liberalism has basically said there is no divine Christ, that he was just a man. And as a result, over time, you take away the divinity of Christ to ultimately the humanity of Christ goes by the wayside as well. Right? So what are you left with? We're left with a culture that has deified attributes of Jesus Christ. And what they're offering students right now, what they're offering our students and my kids is a better vision of the good. And they're saying things like authenticity, you you love authenticity. We really want you to love authenticity. It's really important. Right? And we would all agree with that. But what they've done is they've removed it from the person of Jesus and said it become, and it becomes this idol. And what we need to do is, is really just reconstruct those things and go, hey, you know what? Actually, the most authentic person to ever live was the person of Jesus. You know, some of these other ones, justice. Justice is, social justice is really big, right? Millennials and Gen Zs, right? Who, who, was, who cared more about social justice than anyone on the planet in the history of the world? Jesus. 
And what has a secular liberalism done? It's taken it and it's deified an attribute and it said worship here under the factory of social justice. You can do that with racial issues. You can do that with identity issues. Right? A place to belong. Who, who else is more inviting to, uh, to be part of his kingdom, to be part of his family? You think about the success. That's an interesting one. Like Jesus was all about accomplishing the goal for which his father sent him, wasn't he? Nothing was going to thwart the plan of the father for his son to redeem the world. And Jesus went to his father and said, I'm going to do your will. I'm going to do your will. I'm going to pray constantly. I'm going to do your will. I'm going to get to the garden. I'm going to struggle in the fullness of my humanity whether I should go through with this, but I'm doing your will. I only do what I see my father doing. Jesus was the most dependent person to ever live. All right, so as you think about secular liberalism, here are the things, some of the aspects of an interactive study that we have at See Jesus. And these studies, uh, there's a few youth groups doing them now, and I'm working through those with them. Uh, but they're very interactive. There are a lot of questions, a lot of things. But what they do at the heart of them is they get down to the depths of who Jesus is. And it involves kids. I've been doing this in my family. And even my 12-year-old daughter is being engaged by the questions that are asked. And what it starts getting at, it gets to the, the compassion, the honesty of Jesus, these attributes of who he is, and that the passions... His passion, the cross, is the centerpiece of our faith, and everything's driving to that. But have you ever thought about the dependence of Jesus? You ever thought about how dependent he is? You ever thought about the fact that Jesus exercises faith? It's not a saving faith, but he believed in the promises of the Father that all his enemies would be made a footstool for him, that the kingdom would be his. Jesus lived as the most faith-filled man to ever live. Your kids ever struggle with faith? What's the solution? We give them a bunch of principles, give them a bunch of truths. Here's what faith is. Here's how to walk faith. Yes, do that, but also drive them maybe to the Garden of Gethsemane. Say, man, do you think, it, you think Jesus ever grappled with faith? I think he ever grappled with what his father was doing. He understands your weakness. He understands the struggle. Like, so we're entering into the person of Jesus. Let me do, uh, these are some of the benefits of Christ, uh, of doing a study of the person of Jesus, I believe. He's, a, he's really giving us a theology of what love looks like. Um, if we remove the work of Christ, we have no faith. If we remove the person of Christ, we have not love. If we remove the suffering pathway of Christ from our paradigm of what we study, uh, then when suffering comes, we lose hope. Right? It gets at faith, hope, and love. The person, we learn what love is. The faith, we learn what um, faith is. The pathway of Jesus, we learn what hope is. 
Let me give you an example real quick, exercise for us, okay? Uh, we're going to zero in on a few verses. These verses right here. Actually, just four and five. Circle one a little big there. But in John 13, Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Okay, this is what I'm closing with this. All right, and he says, um, you know, the betrayer is coming. Verse three, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Okay, so what strikes you about this passage? Or let me ask you this. How many, what steps do you see Jesus taking in this passage? How many? How many different actions? You can count them out. You can count them out loud. What's the first one? Rose from supper. Then what do he do? Laid aside his garments. What's next? Took a towel. Tied it around his waist. Poured water into a basin. And washed their feet. And then, and then wrapped it around, right? So seven steps Jesus takes. If this were a movie, what would the scene look like? What would the cinematographer do in this moment? What do you think? Follow each of those. Do what? Follow each of those moments. Okay. It's almost like the camera would zoom in. Do what? Slow motion. Almost. Yeah. Yeah, it's like slow motion. Yeah, very good. You know what's crazy about this? And here's where we get into the person of Jesus. Okay, not only like the servant aspect where he says, you go and do likewise at the end of this passage. But here's what's beautiful about this. Who's writing this? John is. Do you know how many years later John is writing this? About 60 years. Do you remember something in detail that happened a year ago? Anybody remember who won the Super Bowl last year? Very good. Took you a second. <laughs> isn't, it a, isn't it amazing? And here's the beauty of the person of Jesus, that, of what we have missed. Like we read the epistles and we think, oh, they're kind of writing in this theological vacuum. And please, please, please don't go to this and go, yeah, how did John remember all those details 60 years later? Please don't let your theological aptitude make you go to, well, he was writing, as Peter says, he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he brought those things to his mind. I 100% agree that he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but don't let it discount the fact that John, a personal eyewitness who writes in 1 John that we have seen, we've touched, we've heard, that John is remembering this scene so vividly that he had been in the presence of the most beautiful person to ever live. And in this moment was so seared into his heart, he would never forget it. That he recalled every detail. That he rose from supper, 
He took a towel and he took a water basin and he washed our feet. John was captivated by the beauty of the person of Jesus. Isn't that what we want our students' hearts, what we want to happen in their hearts? That they would be so captivated by this beautiful person who teaches them how to do life, who says, in essence, the Father puts on display and he says, you want to know what it means to be human, then watch my son. You want to know what it means to love, then watch the way my son loves. That's the, that's the beauty of it. I'll skip this last part here. Here's my question I wanted to end with for you guys. What might the church look like in the future if an entire generation fell in love with the person of Jesus? Every kid in your youth group was captivated by the beauty of Jesus Christ and not just a gospel formula and not just a cross and a resurrection, but they actually fell in love with him. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? So let me close this in prayer. Jesus, thank you for our time together. I pray uh, for these youth leaders that, Lord, that their hearts would be captivated by the beauty of Jesus Christ. Um, Holy Spirit, will you do that in our midst? Gosh, we have, uh, the church looks so glim. Um, but these guys get to shape the future of the church, and I pray they would shape it with Jesus at the center. Thank you for our time together in Jesus' name. Amen.